I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast is brought to you by Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders, the brand new podcast from HLN. This is the story of teens Abby Williams and Libby German. In February 2017, they went for a hike in Delphi, Indiana and vanished. Nearly 24 hours later, their bodies are found, and the police began working a crime scene they say they'd never unsee. Also found, Libby's phone, which has video and audio of the killer, who, three years on, remains a mystery. Down the Hill, The Delphi Murders begins on February 5th. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. It's January 23rd, 2020. Today marks the third day of argumentation in the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump and the second day of House managers' formal presentation to senators laying out their case for removing the president from office. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. In episode one of this podcast, the House managers and the president's defense team sparred on the structure and timing of the trial proceedings. After more than 12 hours and the rejection of all 11 amendments offered by Senate Democrats, the Senate passed Resolution 483, which set up the procedures and timing for the trial on a 53 to 47 party line vote. Yesterday, House managers laid out to senators in detail a chronological account of the facts in support of their case. And in episode two of this podcast, we condensed more than eight hours of presentations down to about 90 minutes. House managers have today and tomorrow to finish their presentation. After that, it will be the president's defense team's turn. This is the impeachment, episode three, House managers' second day of presentations. It's my understanding the schedule today will be similar to yesterday's proceedings. Uh, We'll plan to take short breaks every two or three hours, and we'll accommodate a 30-minute recess for dinner, assuming that is needed. Thank you. Pursuant to the provisions of Senate Resolution 483, the managers of the House of Representatives have 16 hours and 42 minutes remaining to make the presentation of their case. The Senate will now hear you. The presiding officer recognizes Mr. Manager Schiff to continue the presentation of the case for the House of Representatives. Two days ago, we made the case uh, for documents and for witnesses uh, in the trial. Yesterday, we walked through the chronology, the factual chronology at some length. Today, we'll go through Article 1, the constitutional underpinnings of abuse of power and apply the facts of the President's scheme to the law and Constitution. And here I must ask uh, you for some forbearance. 
Of necessity, there will be some repetition of information from yesterday's chronology, and I want to explain the reason for it. You have now heard hundreds of hours of deposition and live testimony from the House condensed into an abbreviated narrative of the facts. We will now show you these facts and many others and how they are interwoven. You will see some of these facts and videos, therefore, in a new context, in a new light, in the light of what else we know and why it compels a finding of guilt and conviction. So there is some method to our madness. Tomorrow, we will conclude the presentation of the facts and law on Article 1, and we will begin and complete the same on Article 2, the President's unconstitutional obstruction of Congress. The President's counsel will then have three days to make their presentations, and then you will have 16 hours to ask questions, and then the trial will begin. And then you will actually get to hear from the witnesses yourself, and then you'll get to see the documents yourself, or so we hope, and so do the American people. And after their testimony, and after we've had closing arguments, then it will be in your hands. So let's begin today's presentation, and I yield to House Manager Nadler. Chairman Nadler spoke at length at how the framers of the U.S. Constitution arrived at the decision to include the power of impeachment, and what it would and would not include. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, my fellow House Managers, and Counsel for the President. This is the third day of a solemn occasion for the American people. The articles of impeachment against President Trump rank among the most serious charges ever brought against the President. And as our recital of the facts indicated, the articles are overwhelmingly supported by the evidence amassed by the House, notwithstanding the President's complete stonewalling, his attempt to block all witnesses and all documents from the United States Congress. The first article of impeachment charges the President with abuse of power. President Trump used the powers of his office to solicit a foreign nation to interfere in our elections for his own personal benefit. Note that the act of solicitation itself, just the ask, constitutes an abuse of power. But President Trump went further. In order to secure his favor from Ukraine, he withheld two official acts of immense value. First, he withheld the release of $391 million in vital military assistance appropriated by Congress on a bipartisan basis, which Ukraine needed to fight Russian aggression. And second, President Trump withheld a long-sought-after White House meeting, which would confirm to the world that America stands behind Ukraine in its ongoing struggle. The President's conduct is wrong. It is illegal. It is dangerous. And it captures the worst fears of our, founder, frame, of our founders and the framers of the Constitution. Since President George Washington took office in 1789, no president has abused his power in this way. Let me say that again. No president has ever used his office to compel a foreign nation to help him cheat in our elections. Prior presidents would be shocked to the core by such conduct, and rightly so. 
Now, because President Trump has largely failed to convince the country that his conduct was remotely acceptable, he has adopted a fallback position. He argues that even if we disapprove of his misconduct, we cannot remove him for it. Frankly, that argument is itself terrifying. It confirms that this president sees no limits on his power or on his ability to use his public office for private gain. And of course, the president also believes that he can use his power to cover up his crimes. That leads me to the second article of impeachment, which charges that the president categorically, indiscriminately, and unlawfully obstructed our inquiry, the congressional inquiry, into his conduct. This presidential stonewalling of Congress is unprecedented in the 238-year history of our constitutional republic. It puts even President Nixon to shame. Taken together, the articles and the evidence conclusively establish that President Trump has placed his own personal political interests first. He has placed them above our national security, above our free and fair elections, and above our system of checks and balances. This conduct is not America first. It is Donald Trump first. Donald Trump swore an oath to faithfully execute the laws. That means putting the nation's interests above his own. And the president has repeatedly, flagrantly violated his oath. Um, I, and I just want to uh, stress that if this what we're, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created a constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. All of the legal experts testif who testified before the House Judiciary Committee, those invited by the Democrats and those invited by the Republicans, all agreed that the conduct we have charged constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors. Professor Michael Gerhardt, the author of six books and the only joint witness when the House considered President Clinton's case, put it simply, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. Professor Jonathan Turley, called by the Republicans as a witness, agreed that the articles charge an offense that is impeachable. In his written testimony, he stated, the use of military aid for a quid pro quo to investigate one's political opponent, if proven, can be an impeachable offense. Close quote. Thus far, we have presented the core factual narrative. None of that record can be seriously disputed, and none of it will be disputed. We can predict what the President's lawyers will say in the next few days. I urge you, Senators, to listen to it carefully. You will hear accusations and name-calling. You will hear complaints about the process in the House and the motives of the managers. You will hear that this all comes down to a phone call that was perfect, as if you had not just seen evidence of a months-long government-wide effort to extort a foreign government. But you will not hear a refutation of the evidence. You will not hear testimony to refute the testimony you have seen. Indeed, if the president had any exculpatory witnesses, even a single one, he would be demanding their appearance here instead of urging you not to permit additional witnesses to testify.
So now let me offer a preview of the path ahead. First, we will examine the law of impeachable offenses with a focus on abuse of power. That will be the subject of my presentation. Then my colleagues will apply the law to the facts. I'll start by defining the phrase in the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors. When the framers selected this term, they meant it to capture, as George Mason put it, all manner of great and dangerous offenses against the nation. And in contemporary terms, the framers had three specific offenses in mind. Abuse of power, betrayal of the nation through foreign entanglements, and corruption of elections. You can think of these as the ABCs of high crimes and misdemeanors. Abuse, betrayal, and corruption. The framers believed that any one of these standing alone justified removal from office. Professor Noah Feldman of Harvard Law School explained this well before the House Judiciary Committee. Here is his explanation of why the framers created the impeachment power. The framers provided for the impeachment of the president because they feared that the president might abuse the power of his office for personal benefit, to corrupt the electoral process and ensure his reelection, or to subvert the national security of the United States. That is the standard as described by Professor Feldman. It is correct. He put his personal interest in retaining power above free and fair elections and above the principle that Americans must govern themselves without interference from abroad. Article 1 thus charges a high crime and misdemeanor that blends abuse of power, betrayal of the nation, and corruption in elections into a single unforgivable scheme. For example, they debated setting the bar at maladministration to allow removal for run-of-the-mill policy disagreements between Congress and the President. They also considered very narrow grounds, strictly limiting impeachment to treason and bribery. Ultimately, they struck a balance. They did not want presidents removed for ordinary political or policy disagreements. But they intended impeachment to reach the full spectrum of presidential misconduct that might threaten the Constitution. And they intended our Constitution to endure for the ages. So they adopted a standard meant, as Mason put it, to capture all manner of great and dangerous offenses incompatible with the Constitution. This standard, borrowed from the British Parliament, was high crimes and misdemeanors. In England, the standard was understood to capture offenses against the constitutional system itself. That is confirmed by the use of the word high, as well as by parliamentary practice. From 1376 to 1787, the House of Commons impeached officials on a few general grounds, mainly consisting of abuse of power, betrayal of national security and foreign policy, corruption, treason, bribery, and disregarding the powers of parliament. The phrase high crimes and misdemeanors thus covered offenses against the nation itself. As the framers created the formidable chief executive, they made clear that impeachment is justified for serious abuse of power. James Madison stated that impeachment is necessary because the president, quote, might pervert his administration into a scheme of oppression, close quote. Hamilton set the standard for removal at an abuse or violation of some public trust. And in Massachusetts, Reverend Samuel Stillman asked, with such a prospect of impeachment, 
Who will dare to abuse the powers vested in him by the people? Time and again, Americans who wrote and ratified the Constitution confirmed that presidents may be impeached for abusing the power entrusted to them. To the framing generation, moreover, abuse of power was a well-understood offense. It took two basic forms. The first occurred when someone exercised power in ways far beyond what the law allowed, or in ways that destroyed checks on their own authority. The second occurred when an official exercised power to obtain an improper personal benefit while ignoring or injuring the national interest. Nadler pushed back on the president's argument that abuse of power is not impeachable conduct. He insists that there is no such thing as impeachable abuse of power. This position is dead wrong. All prior impeachments considered of high office have always included abuse of power. All of the experts who testified before the House Judiciary Committee, including those called by the Republicans, agreed that abuse of power is a high crime and misdemeanor. Here is testimony from Professor Pam Carlin of Stanford Law School, joined by Professor Gerhardt. Do scholars of impeachment generally agree that abuse of power is an impeachable offense? Yes, they do. Professor Gerhardt, do you agree that abuse of power is impeachable? Yes, sir. Professor Turley, who testified at Republican invitation, echoed that view. In fact, he not only agreed, but he, quote, stressed that it is possible to establish a case for impeachment based on a non-criminal allegation of abuse of power. Professor Turley is hardly the only legal expert to take that view. Another who comes to mind is Professor Alan Dershowitz, at least Alan Dershowitz in 1998. Back then, here is what he had, what he had to say about impeachment for abuse of power. It certainly doesn't have to be a crime. If you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty, you don't need a technical crime. Mm -hmm. But we need not look to 1998 to find one of President Trump's key allies espousing this view. Consider the comments of our current Attorney General, William Barr, a man known for his extraordinarily expansive view of executive power. In Attorney, General's view, in Attorney General Barr's view, as expressed about 18 months ago, presidents cannot be indicted or criminally investigated. But that's okay, because they can, can be impeached. That's the safeguard. And in an impeachment, Attorney General Barr added, the president is answerable for any abuses of discretion and may be held accountable under law for his misdeeds in office. In other words, Attorney General Barr, who believes, along with the Office of Legal Counsel, that a president may not be indicted believes that that's okay, we don't need that safeguard against a president who would commit abuses of power. It's okay because he can be impeached. That's the safeguard for abuses of discretion and for his misdeeds in office. More recently, a group of the nation's leading constitutional scholars, ranging across the ideological spectrum from Harvard Law Professor Larry Tribe, 
to former Ronald Reagan Solicitor General, the framers were no strangers to corruption. They understood that corruption had broken Rome, debased Britain, and threatened America. They saw no shortage of threats to the Republic and fought valiantly to guard against them. But as one scholar writes, the big fear underlying all the small fears was whether they'd be able to control corruption. So the framers attempted to build a government in which officials would not use public power for personal benefits, disregarding the public good in pursuit of their own advancement. This principle applied with special force to the presidency. As, Min as Madison emphasized, because the presidency was to be administered by a single man, his corruption might be fatal to the Republic. Indeed, no fewer than four delegates to the Constitutional Convention, Madison, plus Morris, Mason, and Randolph, listed corruption as a central reason why presidents must be subject to impeachment and removal from office. Impeachment was seen as especially necessary for presidential conduct corrupting our system of political self-government. The framers foresaw and feared that a president might someday place his personal interest in re-election above our abiding commitment to democracy. Such a president, in their view, would need to be removed from office. Professor Feldman made this point in his testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. The framers reserved impeachment for situations where the president abused his office, that is, used it for his personal advantage, and in particular, they were specifically worried about a situation where the president used his office to facilitate corruptly his own re-election. That's, in fact, why they thought they needed impeachment and why waiting for the next election wasn't good enough. Professor Feldman's testimony is grounded in the records of the Constitutional Convention. There, William Davey warned that a president who abused his office might spare no efforts or means whatever to get himself reelected and thus to escape justice. Everything we know about the history of impeachment reinforces the conclusion that impeachable offenses do not have to be crimes, and again, not all crimes are impeachable offenses. We look at, again, at the context and gravity of the misconduct. This position was echoed by the Republicans' expert witness, Professor Turley, in his written testimony. There he stated that, it, quote, it is possible to establish a case for impeachment based on a non-criminal allegation of abuse of power. He also stated, it is clear that high crimes and misdemeanors can encompass non-criminal conduct. More recently, Professor Turley, again the Republican witness at our hearing, wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post entitled, Where the Trump Defense Goes Too Far. In this piece, he stated that the President's argument is as politically unwise as it is constitutionally short-sighted. He added, if successful, it would also come at a considerable cost for the Constitution. Although I disagree with Professor Turley on many, many issues, here he is clearly right. And I might say the same thing of then-House Manager Lindsey Graham, who in President Clinton's trial flatly rejected the notion that impeachable offenses are limited to violations of established law. Here is what he said. What's a high crime? How about if an important person hurts somebody of low means? It's not very scholarly. 
but I think it's a truth. I think that's what they meant by high crimes. doesn't even have to be a crime. It's just when you start using your office and you're acting in a way that hurts people, you've committed a high crime. There are many reasons why high crimes and misdemeanors are not and cannot be limited to violations of the criminal code. We address them at length in the briefs we have filed and the report of the House Judiciary Committee respecting these articles of impeachment. But I would like to highlight a few especially important considerations. I'll, talk, I'll tick through them quickly. First, there is the matter of the historical record. The framers could not have meant, could not have meant to limit impeachment to statutory crimes. Presidents are to be impeached and removed from office for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. But bribery was not made a statutory crime until 1837. Second, the president's position is contradicted by the Constitution's text. The framers repeatedly referred to crimes, offenses, and punishment, crimes, offenses, and punishment elsewhere in the Constitution. But here they refer to high crimes. That matters. It matters because the phrase high crimes refers to offenses against the state rather than to workaday crimes. And it matters because the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors had a rich history in England where, where it had been applied in many, many cases that did not involve crimes under British law. When the framers added high crimes here, here, but nowhere else in the Constitution, they made a deliberate choice. Any doubt on that score is dispelled by the framers' own statements. In Federalist Number 65, Alexander Hamilton explained that impeachable offenses are defined fundamentally by the abuse or violation of some public trust. House Manager Sylvia Garcia then laid out the House's evidence that President Trump acted with corrupt intent in soliciting Ukraine's efforts to assist in his 2020 re-election campaign. The assistance, said Representative Garcia, was in the form of announcements of two investigations that would politically benefit the president. The first, into activities of former Vice President Joe Biden and his son, and the second, into the debunked conspiracy theory that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, President's Counsel, we will not walk through the President's abuse of power, the corrupt object of his scheme, his three official acts carrying out his scheme, his attempted cover-up and exposure, and the harm to our nation, and continuing threat caused by his misconduct. Let's start first with the object of the president's scheme. And senators, we have today provided handouts that you can follow along in our slides. So as this first slide indicates, in this portion of our presentation, we will discuss the evidence that shows overwhelmingly that President Trump directed this scheme with corrupt intent, with one corrupt objective, to obtain foreign assistance in his re-election bid in the 2020 United States presidential election. We will walk through first how the president wanted Ukraine to help in his re-election campaign. He wanted Ukraine to publicly announce two investigations, one into his political rival, 
Joe Biden, and the second into the debunked conspiracy theory related to Ukraine interference in the 2016 election. President Trump himself later confirmed this intent in public statements. We will then explain how we know these investigations were solely for President Trump's personal political gain. First, President Trump made clear he cared only about the announcement, the announcement of the investigations, not the actual investigations. Second, President Trump similarly made clear he cared only about the big stuff, the big stuff, meaning his political investigations. Third, he used his personal attorney, Mr. Giuliani, who repeatedly told us he was pursuing the investigations in his capacity as the president's personal lawyer, and that this wasn't about foreign policy. Fourth and fifth, there is no real dispute that these investigations were never part of an official U.S. policy, and they, in fact, went outside official channels. The Department of Justice even publicly confirmed that they were never asked to talk to Ukraine about these investigations, never. Six multiple officials who knew what was going on repeatedly reported these concerns to supervisors and even the NSC legal advisors. Seventh, Ukraine expressed concerns multiple times that these were political investigations and Ukraine didn't want to get involved in domestic U.S. politics. Eighth, the White House tried to bury the call. Ninth, President Trump himself told us he really wanted and cared about, in his own words, in many public statements. And finally, despite the President Council's attempts to justify his actions, the evidence makes clear that President Trump did not care about anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine. This was only about one thing, his political investigations. We are following along on the slide. Now, as I mentioned, the object of the president's scheme is clear. Two investigations to help his political re-election. House Manager Sylvia Garcia explained the Joe Biden conspiracy theory, spending considerable time debunking it in detail. She then explained how pursuing it benefited Donald Trump. Common sense would tell us that this allegation against Joe Biden is false and that there was no legitimate basis for any investigation. But there are several other reasons, you know, that the only reason President Trump wanted Ukraine to announce the investigation into Biden that was also solely for his very own personal benefit. So if you look at the slide, it'll summarize some points. First, None of the 17 witnesses in the House's inquiry said there was any factual basis for this allegation. 
not one of the 17. To the contrary, they testified it was false. Second, as I mentioned, the former Prosecutor General, Vice President, General Vice President Biden, was widely considered to be corrupt and failed to investigate corruption in Ukraine. Thus, removing him from office would only increase the chances that Burisma would be investigated for possible corruption. Third, because the prosecutor was so corrupt, Vice President Biden calling for his removal was also at the direction of official U.S. policy and undertaken with the unanimous support of our allies. Fourth, the successor to the fired Ukrainian Prosecutor General admitted that Vice President Biden's son didn't do anything wrong in connection with Burisma. So the entire premise of the investigation that the President wanted Ukraine to pursue was simply false. Finally, President Trump didn't care about any of this until 2019. But when Vice President Biden became the front runner for the Democratic presidential nomination, and polls showed that he had the largest head-to-head -head lead against President Trump, it wasn't until Biden began beating him in the polls that he called for the investigation. The president asked Ukraine for this investigation for one reason and one reason only, because he knew he would, it would be damaging to an opponent who was consistently beating him in the polls, and therefore it could help him get reelected in 2020. President Trump had the motive, he had the opportunity, and the means to commit this abuse of power. Now let's turn to the second investigation that President Trump wanted. <clears throat> what he wanted is a widely debunked conspiracy theory that Ukraine, rather than Russia, interfered in the 2016 U.S. election to benefit President Trump's opponent. As we will explain, the allegation that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 elections, just like the, the allegation that Biden improperly removed the Ukraine prosecutor, has absolutely no basis in fact. In fact, this theory ignored the unanimous conclusions of the UN U.S. Intelligence Agency, the Congressional Intelligence Committees, and Special Counselor Mueller, which found that Russia, Russia attacked our elections. It also went against the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which found no evidence supporting that Ukraine attacked our elections. Nor did any witness support the theory that Ukraine attacked our elections. Indeed, even President Trump's own advisors told him the claim was false. In fact, the one person who told President Trump his theory is true, who was it? You know it was our adversary, Russia, who had everything to gain 
by deflecting the blame from their attack on Ukraine. Let's look at what President Trump was actually suggesting Ukraine investigate. The theory is this. Instead of listening to our entire intelligence community that concluded that Russia interfered in our 2016 election to assist Donald Trump, the new theory says it was Ukraine that interfered in the election to help Hillary Clinton and hurt Donald Trump. One aspect of this conspiracy theory was that the American cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, which had helped the DNC respond to Russia's cyber attack in 2016, moved a DNC server to Ukraine to prevent the FBI from examining it. Here's what President Trump said about this conspiracy theory during the 25, July 25 call. Quote, I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people, the server. They say Ukraine has it. Once again, if this sounds far-fetched and crazy, it should, because it is. There is simply no factual basis to support this conspiracy theory. Let's walk through the concrete reasons why. Garcia explained that the CrowdStrike conspiracy theory was promoted by Russia and benefited Russia. It's more dangerous than that. Because where did this theory come from? You guessed it, the Russians. Russia, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Russian intelligence services perpetuated this false, debunked conspiracy theory. Now remember, there is no dispute among the intelligence community, the Russians, that a Russia attacked our 2016 election. The Senate's own intelligence committee published a report telling us that as well. So it's no surprise that Russia wants to blame somebody else. In fact, President Trump even said that. President Putin is the one who told him it was Ukraine who interfered in our elections. In short, this theory that the Russians are promoting to interfere yet again in our democratic process and deflect blame from their own attacks against us. But what is so dangerous is that President Trump is helping them perpetuate this. Our own president is helping our adversary attack our processes and to help his own reelection. Dr. Hill, an expert on these matters, explains it in more detail as to why this is very concerning. Let's watch. This relates to the second thing I want to communicate. Based on questions and statements I've heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. 
The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. This is the public conclusion of our intelligence agencies confirmed in bipartisan congressional reports. It is beyond dispute, even if some of the underlying details must remain classified. The impact of the successful 2016 Russian campaign remains evident today. Our nation is being torn apart. Truth is questioned. Our highly professional and expert career foreign service is being undermined. US support for Ukraine, which continues to face armed Russian aggression, has been politicized. The Russian government's goal is to weaken our country, to diminish America's global role, and to neutralize a perceived US threat to Russian interests. Their goal is to weaken our country, to diminish America's global role, and to neutralize a perceived US threat to Russian interests. That's why it's so dangerous. Because despite the lack of any evidence to support this debunked conspiracy theory, the unanimous conclusion of the intelligence community, Congress, Special Counsel Mueller, and the FBI to the contrary, President Trump continued to promote this fake conspiracy theory just because it would be beneficial and helpful to his own reelection campaign. Even President Trump's own senior advisors told him these allegations were false. Tom Bossert, President Trump's former Homeland Security Advisor, stated publicly that the crowd strike theory had been debunked. Here's that interview. Let's watch. It's not only a conspiracy theory, it is completely debunked. You know, I, I don't want to be glib about this matter, but uh, last year, uh, retired former Senator Judd Gregg wrote a piece in The Hill magazine saying the three ways or the five ways to impeach oneself. And the third way was to hire Rudy Giuliani. And, and at this point, I am deeply frustrated with what he and the legal team is doing and repeating that debunked theory to the president. It sticks in his mind when he hears it over and over again. And for clarity here, George, let me just again repeat that it has no validity. The alternative narrative of Ukrainian interference on the 2016 election has now been picked up by the president's defenders and the conservative media. It has muddled the waters regarding Russia's own interference in our elections, efforts that remain ongoing, as we have learned last week, this week from reporting that Russia hacked Burisma. If there were any doubt about how President Putin feels about the president's conduct, you need only look to Putin's own words. His statement on November 20 tells it all. Quote, thank God nobody is accusing us anymore of interfering in U.S. elections. Now they're accusing Ukraine. That's a short quotation from Putin, but it speaks volumes. Even though President Trump knew that there was no factual basis for the theory that it was Ukraine that interfered in the 2016 election rather than Russia, and knew that Russia was perpetuating this theory, he still wanted President Zelensky to pursue the investigation.
Why? Because while Putin and Russia clearly stood by to gain by promoting this conspiracy theory about Ukraine, so did Donald Trump. He knew it would be politically helpful to his 2010-2020 election. An announcement of an investigation of, by Ukraine would have breathed new life into a debunked conspiracy theory that Ukrainian election interference was there in 2016 and it lended great credibility. It would have cast doubt on the conclusions of the Intelligence Committee and Special Counsel Miller that Russia interfered in the 2016 election to help President Trump. And it would have helped eliminate a perceived threat to the legitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency that he was only elected because of the help he received from President Putin. Hey everyone, Andrew Iden here, host of the brand new podcast from HLN, Down the Hill, The Delphi Murders. This is the story of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. They were typical teens into art, softball, Snapchat. And in February of 2017, they went for a hike on a warm day in Delphi, Indiana, and vanished. Nearly 24 hours after that hike, their bodies are found in the woods. They'd been murdered, and the police began working a crime scene they say they'll never unsee. Also found, Libby's cell phone, which has video and audio of the killer, who three years later remains on the loose. Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders begins on February 5th. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, House Manager Schiff rose to add further evidence to claim that President Trump's motive for his conduct toward Ukraine was corrupt. He also sought to defuse some potential counterarguments. Senators, I'm going to pick up where my colleague from Texas left off, but I wanted to begin by underscoring a few of the points that she made in listening to her presentation that really leapt out at me in a way they hadn't leapt out at me before. Um, but first, I wanted to uh, address uh, my colleagues shared a number of slides showing the polling strength of Joe Biden vis-a-vis -vis the president as a demonstration of his motive, the fact that he went after these political investigations to undermine someone that he was deeply concerned about. Uh, this is an appropriate point for me to make the disclaimer, the House managers take no position in the Democratic primary for president. Um, I don't want to lose a single more vote than necessary. Um, but those polls do show a powerful motive that Donald Trump had, a motive that he didn't have the year before or the year before that, a motive that he didn't have when he allowed the aid to go to Ukraine without complaint or issue uh, in 2017 or 2018. It was only when he had a growing concern with Joe Biden's candidacy that he took a sudden interest in Ukraine and Ukraine funding and the withholding of that aid. But I also want to underscore what the president said in that July 25th call. When my colleague 
showed you again that transcript from July 25th where the president says, I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. Now, my colleagues have explained what that theory is about that server, that CrowdStrike server. The crazy theory that it was Ukraine that hacked the Democratic server and that server was whisked away to Ukraine and hidden there so that the investigators, the FBI, couldn't look at this server, okay? That's what Donald Trump was raising in that conversation with President Zelensky. Now, I, I bring this up, this point up again, because you may hear from my colleagues, the President's lawyers, as we heard during the testimony in the House, that the concern was over Ukrainian interference in the election, and why isn't it possible that both Russia and Ukraine interfere in the election. Now, never mind that's contrary to all the evidence. But it's important to point out here that we're not talking about generic interference. We're not talking about, as we heard from some of my colleagues in the House, a tweet from a Ukrainian here or an op-ed written by somebody there and equating it with the kind of systematic interference of the Russians. What we're talking about here, what the president is talking about here, is a very specific conspiracy theory going to the server itself, meaning that it was Ukraine that hacked the Democratic server, not the Russians. This theory was brought to you by the Kremlin. Okay? So we're not talking about generic interference. We're talking about the server. We're talking about CrowdStrike. At least that's what Donald Trump wanted to investigate or announced this completely bogus Kremlin-pushed conspiracy theory. Now, I was also struck by that video you saw of Tom Bossert, the former Homeland Security Advisor for the President, in which he talked about how completely debunked and crazy this conspiracy theory is. And there, there was that, you know, rather glib line that, that was, you know, uh, he admitted was glib, but nonetheless made a point the three or five ways to impeach oneself, and the third way was to hire Rudy Giuliani. Now, it struck me in watching that clip again that it's important to emphasize that Rudy Giuliani is not some Svengali here who has the president under his control. There may be an effort to say, okay, the human hand grenade Rudy Giuliani, it's all his fault. He had the president in his grip. And even though the U.S. intelligence agencies and the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee and everyone else told the president time after time, this is nonsense, the Russians interfered, not the Ukrainians, that, that he just couldn't shake himself of what he was hearing from Rudy Giuliani. You can say a lot of things about President Trump, but he is not led by the nose by Rudy Giuliani. And if he is willing to listen to his personal lawyer over his own intelligence agencies, his own advisors, then you can imagine what a danger that presents to this country. And just looking at how baseless and fabricated the allegations behind them were made plain his corrupt motive. But in addition to this overwhelming evidence, there are at least 10 other reasons we know that President Trump directed his scheme with corrupt intent. There are at least 10 other reasons 
we know that President Trump was interested in his own personal gain and not the national interest in pressing for these investigations. First, the President only wanted these investigations to be announced publicly, not even conducted. Second, the President's only interest in Ukraine was the big stuff that mattered to himself, not issues affecting Ukraine or the United States. Third, the President tasked his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to pursue these investigations on his behalf, not government officials. Fourth, both before and after the July 25th call, the investigations were never part of U.S. official foreign policy. NSC, NSC officials, too, make clear that this was not about foreign policy. And other witnesses confirmed the investigations, in fact, diverged from U.S. official policy. Fifth, the investigations were undertaken outside of normal channels. Sixth, Ukrainian officials understood that the investigations were purely political in nature. Seventh, multiple administration officials reported the President's July 25th call. Eighth, the White House buried the call. Ninth, President Trump confirmed he wanted Ukraine to conduct investigations in his own words. And finally, President Trump did not care about anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine. Let's go through these one by one. First, perhaps the simplest way that we all know that President Trump wanted these investigations done solely to help his personal political interests and not the national interest is that he merely wanted a public announcement of the investigations, not an assurance that they would actually be done. If his desire for these investigations was truly to assist Ukraine's anti-corruption efforts, or because he was worried about the larger issues of corruption in Ukraine, someone actually investigating the facts underlying the investigations would have been most important. But he didn't care about the facts or the issues. He just wanted the political benefit. The point is this. The evidence is consistent. It establishes clearly that President Trump did not care about corruption. To the contrary, he was pursuing a corrupt aim. He wanted Ukraine to do the exact thing that American policy officials have tried for years to stop foreign governments from doing, corrupt investigations of political rivals. To sum up, the evidence is unmistakably clear. On July 25th, while acting as our nation's chief diplomat and speaking to the leader of Ukraine, President Trump solicited foreign interference in the U.S. election for one particular objective, to benefit his own reelection, to seek help in cheating in a U.S. election. He requested, effectively demanded, a personal political favor that Ukraine announced two bogus investigations that were only of value to himself. This was not about foreign policy. In fact, it was inconsistent with and diverged from American national security and American values. His own officials knew this, and they reported it. Ukraine knew this, and his own White House attempted to bury the call. 
The president has confirmed what he wanted in his own words. He has made it clear he didn't care about corruption. He cared only about himself. Now it is up to us to do something about it, to make sure that a president, that this president, cannot pursue an objective that places himself above our country. House Manager Zoe Lofgren took over from Schiff, explaining how exactly the House believes the president abused his power by pressuring Ukraine to announce investigations into Biden in the 2016 elections. Let's drill down on how. How the president abused the power of his office and executed his corrupt scheme. As noted earlier, the president executed his scheme through three official actions. First, by soliciting foreign election interference. Second, by conditioning an official Oval Office meeting on on Ukraine doing, or at least announcing, the political investigations. And third, by withholding military aid to pressure Ukraine to announce those investigations. All three of President Trump's official actions were an abuse of his power as president and done for personal gain. But the original abuse was President Trump's solicitation of election interference from a foreign country, Ukraine. He tried to get an announcement of investigations designed to help him in the 2020 presidential election, so let's start there. President Trump's corrupt demands of President Zelensky in the July 25th phone call were not just a spontaneous outburst. They were a dramatic crescendo in a months-long scheme to extort Ukraine into assisting his 2020 re-election campaign. As was shown, there's evidence of President Trump himself demanding that Ukraine conduct the investigations. But President Trump also delegated his authority to his political agent, Rudy Giuliani, to oversee and direct this scheme. House Manager Lofgren points to evidence of telephone communications between then-National Security Advisor John Bolton and Rudy Giuliani. According to Lofgren, these telecommunications obtained by the House show why Bolton's testimony before the Senate is valuable. Ambassador Bolton told Dr. Hill that Rudy Giuliani was a, quote, hand grenade that's going to blow everybody up. Dr. Hill testified that Ambassador Bolton issued guidance for the National Security uh, Council staff to not engage with Rudy Giuliani. That made sense. Why? Because Mr. Giuliani was not conducting official U.S. foreign policy. He was doing a domestic political errand for President Trump. Now, these phone records, as I say, lawfully obtained, reveal potential contact between Ambassador Bolton and Rudy Giuliani on May 9th, the day the New York Times reported his trip to Kiev. Rudy Giuliani's role in Ukraine policy is yet another topic that Ambassador Bolton could speak to. You should call him and hear what he has to say about it. Even without Ambassador Bolton's testimony, 
multiple other administration officials confirmed Mr. Giuliani's central role. Ambassador Sondland said, quote, it was apparent to everyone that the key to changing the president's mind on Ukraine was Giuliani. House manager Lofgren also connected Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two individuals who were recently charged with a criminal scheme to route foreign money into U.S. elections. She chronicles the progression of smear campaigns against Ambassador Marie Ivanovich and the Bidens. Again, to review, President Trump used his personal agent for Ukraine. He's made this clear to U.S. officials and to the Ukrainians. The evidence shows President Trump and Rudy Giuliani were in constant contact during this period. President Trump directed him to pursue investigations. He told U.S. officials to work with Rudy. He told Ukrainians to work with Rudy. Rudy and his associates pressed Ukraine for investigations into the president's political rival. Giuliani said, quote, Biden will not get to election day without this being investigated. Keeping all this in mind, let's turn to the president's first official act, soliciting foreign interference. As we mentioned, in late 2018 and early 2019, Rudy Giuliani and his associates, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, were busy soliciting information from corrupt Ukrainians to help President Trump. They pursued a months-long campaign to dig up dirt on Biden. In late 2018 and early 2019, Parnas, Fruman, and Giuliani met extensively with two corrupt Ukrainian prosecutors, Yuri Lutsenko and Viktor Shokin, to gather information they believed would help President Trump. Parnas wrote, quote, I was asked personally to convey to you that America supports you and will not let you be harmed no matter how things look now. Soon, everything will turn around and will be on the right course, just so you know. Here, people are talking about you as a true Ukrainian hero. Lutsenko responded with the dirt that President Trump wanted. He wrote, quote, I have copies of payments from Burisma to Seneca. Minutes after being reassured, reassured that America supports you and will not let you be harmed, Lutsenko claimed he had records of payments from Burisma to Rosemont Seneca Partners, a firm founded by Hunter Biden. This text message, along with others, show that Lutsenko was providing derogatory information on the Bidens in exchange for Parnas pushing for Ambassador Yovanovitch's removal. Now, in late March and throughout April 2019, the smear campaign against the Bidens and against Ambassador Yovanovitch ended, entered a more public phase through a series of opinion pieces published in The Hill. The public airing of these allegations was orchestrated, orchestrated by Giuliani, Parnas, and Lutsenko. We know from records produced by Parnas that he played an important role in getting derogatory information from Lutsenko and his deputy to John Solomon, who wrote the opinion pieces in The Hill. 
According to the Hill articles, Ukrainian officials falsely claimed to have evidence of wrongdoing about the following. One, that Vice President Biden's efforts uh, in 2015 to remove Shokin. Two, Hunter Biden's role as a Burisma board member. Three, Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election in favor of Hillary Clinton. Four, the misappropriation and transfer of Ukrainian funds abroad. This was what President Trump wanted from the Ukrainians. The same information Mr. Giuliani and his agents were scheming up with Ukraine to hurt Biden and in exchange to have Ambassador Yovanovitch removed. Now, Mr. Giuliani was very open about this, and here is a clip worth watching. Let me tell you my interest in that. I got information about three or four months ago that a lot of the explanation for how this whole phony investigation started will be in the Ukraine, that there were a group of people in the Ukraine that were working to help Hillary Clinton and were colluding, really, <laughs> with the Clinton campaign. And it stems around the ambassador and the embassy being used for political purposes. So I began getting some people that were coming forward and telling me about that. And then all of a sudden, they revealed this story about Burisma and Biden's son. Well, Mr. Giuliani got laughed at on Fox News for advancing the crowdsource conspiracy theory, uh, but the clip shows that he uh, had been making an effort to get derogatory information from the Ukrainians on behalf of his client, President Trump. My colleague, Ms. Demings, will now further detail how the scheme evolved. So when President Trump asked for a favor on a July 25th call, he knew that President Zelensky would feel incredible pressure to do exactly what President Trump wanted. President Trump used his agents, both his administration appointees and his personal attorney, Rudolph Giuliani, to make clear to Ukraine, even in early July, that much-needed White House meeting that they requested would only occur if they announced these phony political investigations. Now, to be clear, as Ambassador Sondland testified, everyone was in the loop. That includes Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Secretary of Energy Rick Perry. Even ahead of the July 25th call, Ambassador Sondland was in close, repeated contact with these officials. His mission, schedule a telephone conversation during which the new Ukrainian leader would personally commit to do the phony investigations sought by President Trump in order to unlock a meeting in the Oval Office. This for that, a quid pro quo. 
Now, this isn't just based on the testimony of witnesses. It is corroborated by texts and emails as well. Let's look at some of that evidence now. On July 13th, for example, Ambassador Sondland emailed National Security Council official Timothy Morrison and made the case for President Trump to call the Ukrainian leader prior to the parliamentary elections scheduled for July 21st. The evidence against Donald Trump is hiding in plain sight. During our presentation, we've walked through the serious issues presented in the plain reading of the July 25th call, but now you can see the entire context of how this corrupt parade of horribles unfolded. The quid pro quo was discussed in text messages, emails, voicemails, calls, and meetings amongst top administration officials and top Ukrainian officials. After the July 25th call, the Ukrainians followed up with President Trump's direction and began to coordinate with Rudolph Giuliani, the president's political bagman. Acting on the president's orders, U.S. diplomats, including Ambassador Sondland and Ambassador Volker, worked with Mr. Giuliani to continue pressuring Ukraine to announce the phony investigations that President Trump sought in exchange for that Oval Office meeting. This is corruption and abuse of power in its purest form. House Manager Val Dennings then detailed the House's case that President Trump's freeze on U.S. security assistance to Ukraine was not only illegal, but an abuse of power. Chief Justice Roberts, Senators, and Counsel for the President, we have now been through the first two official acts by the President, but neither of those official acts got the President what he wanted, help in his reelection campaign. So he turned to another official act to turn up the pressure even more, withholding nearly $400 million of vital military assistance to Ukraine in exchange for the investigations. Withholding military assistance to Ukraine made the original abuse of power, soliciting foreign interference in our elections that much worse. But it was also in and of itself an abuse of power. And not only that, it violated the law. It was illegal. The Government Accountability Office, a nonpartisan independent agency, concluded that President Trump's hold on the security assistance clearly violated the Impoundment Control Act, a law that Congress enacted to curb President Nixon's own abuse of power. Now, President Trump may not like it, but once a law is passed, the president cannot change that law without coming back to us, the Congress. And President Trump did not just break the law, he jeopardized our national security. Because Ukraine's national security is our national security. How? Because a free and democratic Ukraine 
is a shield against Russian aggression in Europe. That has been one of America's most important foreign policy and national security goals since World War II. Freedom, liberty, democracy, those values keep us safe. Let us now explain how President Trump's improper withholding of military assistance was clearly done to pressure Ukraine to announce the two baseless investigations, a gross abuse of power. First, we will briefly describe how important the military aid was to Ukraine's defense against Russian aggression, which affects our security. Second, we will explain how President Trump used the power of his office to freeze military aid to Ukraine in a way meant to conceal it from Congress. And third, we will present the overwhelming evidence that President Trump ordered the whole for a corrupt purpose, to pressure Ukraine to announce two investigations that would personally benefit his own re-election effort. Let us start with the importance of the aid to our, the United States national security. The United States has supported Ukraine since it secured independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Our support was critical to convince Ukraine to forego its pursuit of a nuclear arsenal in 1994. We promised them that we would defend them if necessary. But our support became truly vital in 2014 when Ukraine revolted against its Russian-friendly president, Viktor Nanuvakich. Ukrainian citizens rose up in protest, demanding democratic reforms and an end to corruption. The protests, rightly known as the Revolution of Dignity, removed the pro-Kremlin president. Russia responded by using its own military forces and proxies in Ukraine to invade Ukraine. This was the first effort to redraw European boundaries by military force since World War II. The war was devastating to Ukraine and remains so today. Approximately 7% of Ukraine's territory is now occupied by Russia. Approximately 15,000 people have been killed as a result of the conflict and over 1.4 million people have been displaced. In response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the United States and our allies imposed sanctions on Russian individuals and entities and agreed to provide billions of dollars in assistance to support Ukrainian sovereignty and democratic development. We understood immediately, Democrats and Republicans alike, that Ukraine's safety and security was directly tied to our safety and security. 
With this goal in mind, since 2014, the United States has delivered roughly $1.5 billion in security assistance and another $1.5 billion in other assistance to our ally, Ukraine. Our allies in Europe have provided approximately $18 billion in loans and grants since 2014. As we have explained, the U.S. assistance comes partially from the Department of Defense, which provides important military support. It comes partially from the State Department, which helps Ukraine purchase military services or equipment manufactured by American companies in the United States. Ambassador Taylor explained how security assistance counters Russian aggression and can help shorten the war in the East. Here is his testimony. Mr. Chairman, the security assistance that we provide it takes many forms. One of the components of that The security assistance that we provide it takes many forms. One of the components of that assistance is counter-battery radar. Another component are sniper weapons. These weapons um, and this assistance um, it allows the Ukrainian military to deter further incursions by the Russians uh, against their own, against Ukrainian territory. If that further incursion, further aggression uh, were to take place, more Ukrainians would die. So it is a, a deterrent effect that these weapons provide. It's also the ability, it gives the Ukrainians the ability to negotiate from a position of a little more strength when they negotiate an end to the war in Donbas, negotiating with the Russians. This also is a way that would reduce the number of Ukrainians who would die. Congress imposed certain conditions on the DOD assistance. Those conditions require a DOD, require DOD to hold half of the money in reserve. To release all of the funds, DOD, in coordination with the State Department, must conduct a review and certify to Congress that Ukraine has done enough to fight corruption. Now, President Trump may argue that the conditions imposed by Congress are similar to the hold he placed on aid to Ukraine. As Mick Mulvaney said, and I quote, we do this all the time. But let us be very clear. These types of conditions, which are often included in appropriation bills, are designed to promote official U.S. policy, not the policy of one individual or one president. This is exactly the type of permissible condition on aid that Vice President Biden was implementing when he required that Ukraine fire its corrupt prosecutor general before getting a loan guarantee. Prior to 2019, 
The Trump administration provided security assistance to Ukraine without incident. Even under the previous Ukrainian administration of President Petro Prochinsko, which suffered from serious corruption, President Trump allowed $510 million dollars in 2017 and $559 million in 2018 to flow unimpeded to Ukraine. But in the summer of 2019, without any explanation, President Trump abruptly withheld the security assistance to Ukraine. So what had changed by July of 2019? Congress had appropriated the funds. President Trump had signed it into law. The Department of Defense had certified that Ukraine was meeting the required anti-corruption reforms. In fact, DOD had begun to spend the funds. So what happened? Well, in April, two critical things happened. First. Joe Biden publicly announced his campaign for president. Second, the Mueller investigation concluded that Russia interfered in the 2016 U.S. elections to assist the Trump campaign and that the Trump campaign had extensive contacts with, Russian, with Russians and even took advantage of some of the Russian efforts. The evidence shows that the only reason, the only logical reason, and we deal in what's reasonable, President Trump withheld the aid. It was to undermine these threats to his political future. As we have discussed, security assistance to Ukraine has broad bipartisan support from Congress as well as every agency within the president's own administration. And let us be clear about something. The money mattered to Ukraine. It mattered to Ukraine. Witness testimony revealed that this money was 10% of Ukraine's defense budget. 10%. Now imagine if President Trump just decided, without cause or explanation, to hold 10% of our own defense budget. That would have a dramatic impact on our military, and it certainly did to Ukraine, our ally. Keep in mind, too, that President Trump had to sign the law, the bill, into law, which he did in September of 2018. At no time, at no time during the congressional debate or passage of the bill, did the White House express any concerns about the funding or the program itself. I want you to see the slide before us. President Trump signs bill authorizing aid to Ukraine for fiscal year 2019. On June 18, President Trump's own Department of Defense certified 
that Ukraine had met all of the anti-corruption requirements necessary to receive aid. And you know what? The Department of Defense announced that the money was on its way, just as we, the United States of America, had promised. Senators, our word must continue to mean something. Our word must continue to mean something powerful in the world. So let us make certain that America continues to live up to its promise. House Manager Zoe Lofgren criticized the administration for not providing relevant information to Congress. On August 30th, Michael Duffy sent an email to Elaine McCusker, the DOD comptroller. It said, quote, clear direction from POTUS to continue the hold. President Trump has refused to produce this or any other email to Congress. When the administration was forced to produce it in a Freedom of Information case in response to a court order, this critical passage was actually blacked out. What's the reason for blacking out this direction from the president about an issue so central to this case? No reason has been given to us. So you should ask yourself this. What is the president hiding? The president, I turn now to Mr. Crow, who will outline information about the president's intentions. House Manager Jason Crow. In fact, the hold was formally implemented by OMB the very day of the call. Just hours after the call between President Trump and President Zelensky, Duffy sent an email to senior DOD officials instructing them to put a hold on the security aid. He said, he underscored, quote, given the sensitive nature of the request, I appreciate your keeping that information closely held to those who need to know to, ex- to execute the direction. In other words, don't tell anybody about it. If the president ordered the hold for a legitimate policy reason, then why did he want to hide it from the rest of the administration? President Trump has obstructed Congress's ability to get those answers. We would like to ask Duffy why they wanted to keep it quiet. There's more evidence, of course, a lot more. In fact, there's so much evidence that, according to witnesses, the fact that the security assistance was conditioned on investigations became as clear as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Everyone knew it. Here is Ambassador Taylor explaining what Sondland himself told Taylor about what took place on that Sondland-Trump call a day later. He confirmed that he had talked to President Trump, as I had suggested a week earlier, but that President Trump was adamant that President Zelensky himself had to clear things up and do it in public. President Trump said it was not a quid pro quo. Like Sondland, both Taylor and Morrison recalled that President Trump said that he did not want to quid pro quo. But they both testified that President Trump followed that statement immediately by describing perfectly in exchange of this for that. Or in other words, a quid pro quo. 
President Zelensky got the message. He succumbed to the pressure. At the end of the conversation between Sondland and President Zelensky, President Zelensky, Zelensky explained that he had finally relented. His country needed the military aid, desperately. Their people were dying on the front line all of the time. They were taking casualties every day. He agreed to make the statement. Ambassador Sondland said that this conversation concluded with President Zelensky agreeing to make a public statement in an interview on CNN. President Zelensky had resisted making the announcement of the corrupt investigations for months. He resisted when Giuliani and other agents of the president made it known that President Trump required it. He resisted when President Trump himself asked directly on, 25th, on July 25th. He resisted when the White House meeting he so desperately desired was conditioned on that announcement. And he resisted as vital military aid was on hold. But the money is 10% of his entire defense budget. Russia occupied the eastern part of his country. He could resist no more. The President of the United States violated the law by withholding nearly $400 million of taxpayer dollars intended to fight Russia. He put his own interests over the country. And that is why we are here. House Manager Schiff ended the day by thanking the senators for their careful and open-minded listening. He also examined certain moments of the Trump-Zelensky July 25th call memorandum in light of the case that the House has laid out. In concluding, he questioned what might have happened if all of the events had not come to light through the whistleblower complaint and made an argument for the urgent removal of the president. This brings me to the last point I want to make tonight, which is when we're done... We believe that we will have made the case overwhelmingly of the president's guilt. That is, he's done what he's charged with. He withheld the money. He withheld the meeting. He used it to coerce Ukraine to do these political investigations. He covered it up. He obstructed us. He's trying to obstruct you. And he's violated the Constitution. But I want to address one other thing tonight. Okay, he's guilty. Okay, he's guilty. Does he really need to be removed? Does he really need to be removed? We have an election coming up. Does he really need to be removed? He's guilty. You know, is there really any doubt about this? I mean, do we really have any doubt about the facts here? Does anybody really question whether the president is capable of what he's charged with? No one is really making the argument Donald Trump would never do such a thing. Because of course we know that he would, and of course we know that he did. It's a somewhat different question, though, to ask, okay, it's pretty obvious, whether we can say it publicly or we can't say it publicly, we all know what we're dealing here with this president. But does he really need to be removed? And this is why he needs to be removed. Donald Trump chose Rudy Giuliani over his own intelligence agencies. He chose Rudy Giuliani over his own FBI director. He chose Rudy Giuliani over his own national security advisors. When all of them were telling him this 
Ukraine 2016 stuff is kooky, crazy Russian propaganda. He chose not to believe them. He chose to believe Rudy Giuliani. That makes him dangerous to us, to our country. That was Donald Trump's choice. Now, why would Donald Trump believe a man like Rudy Giuliani over a man like Christopher Wray? Okay? Why would anyone in their right mind believe Rudy Giuliani over Christopher Wray? Because he wanted to and because what Rudy was offering him was something that would help him personally. And what Christopher A. was offering him was merely the truth. What Christopher A. was offering him was merely the information he needed to protect his country and its elections. But that's not good enough. What's in it for him? What's in it for Donald Trump? This is why he needs to be removed. Now, you may be asking, how much damage can he really do in the next several months until the election? A lot. A lot of damage. Now, we just saw last week a report that Russia tried to hack or maybe did hack Burisma. Okay? I don't know if they got in. I'm trying to find out. My colleagues on the Intel Committee, House and Senate, we're trying to find out, did the Russians get in? What are the Russian plans and intentions? Well, let's say they got in. And let's say they start dumping documents to interfere in the next election. Let's say they start dumping some real things they hacked from Burisma. Let's say they start dumping some fake things they didn't hack from Burisma, but they want you to believe they did. Let's say they start blatantly interfering in our election again to help Donald Trump. Can you have the least bit of confidence that Donald Trump will stand up to them and protect our national interest over his own personal interest. You know you can't. Which makes him dangerous to this country. You know you can't. You know you can't count on him. None of us can. None of us can. What happens if China got the message? Now you can say, well, he's just joking, of course. He didn't really mean China should investigate the Bidens. You know that's no joke. Now, maybe you could have argued three years ago when he said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, hack Hillary's emails. Maybe you could give him a freebie and say he was joking. But now we know better. Hours after he did that, Russia did, in fact, try to hack Hillary's emails. There's no mulligan here when it comes to our national security. So what if China does overtly or covertly start to help the Trump campaign? You think he's going to call him out on it? Or you think he's going to give him a better trade deal on it? Can any of us really have the confidence that Donald Trump will put his personal interests ahead of the national interest? Is there really any evidence in this presidency that should give us the ironclad confidence that he would do so. You know you can't count on him to do that. That's the sad truth. You know you can't count on him to do that.
The American people deserve a president they can count on to put their interest first. To put their interest first. Colonel Vindman said, here right matters. Here right matters. Well, let me tell you something. If right doesn't matter, if right doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how good the Constitution is. It doesn't matter how brilliant the framers were. It doesn't matter how good or bad our advocacy in this trial is. It doesn't matter how well written the oath of impartiality is. If right doesn't matter, we're lost. If the truth doesn't matter, we're lost. Framers couldn't protect us from ourselves if right and truth don't matter. And you know that what he did was not right. You know, that's what they do in the old country that Colonel Vindman's father came from, or the old country that my great-grandfather came from, or the old countries that your ancestors maybe you came from. But here, right is supposed to matter. It's what's made us the greatest nation on earth. No constitution can protect us. Right doesn't matter anymore. And you know you can't trust this president to do what's right for this country. You can trust he will do what's right for Donald Trump. He'll do it now. He's done it before. He'll do it for the next several months. He'll do it in the election if he's allowed to. This is why if you find him guilty, you must find that he should be removed. Because right matters. Because right matters. And the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. Mr. Chief Justice. Majority Leader is recognized. I ask unanimous consent that the trial adjourn until 1 p.m. Friday, January the 24th and that this order also constitute the adjournment of the Senate. Without objection, so ordered. The Senate is adjourned. Tomorrow, House managers will resume their arguments against the President of the United States, their final day to present their case. This has been day three of the impeachment. Thank you for listening. The impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C., from the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adolsky, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.